0: Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned, In Search of Wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com Welcome and thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Susan Liotto, the author of The Power of Ethics, How to Make Good Choices in a Complicated World. Susan is the founder and managing director of Susan Liotto and Associates Limited, which advises clients from global corporations to NGOs on complex ethics matters. She teaches cutting-edge ethics courses at Stanford and has a forthcoming book titled The Little Book of Big Ethical Questions. In the conversation, Susan and I discuss the power of ethics, avoiding perfectionism, ethical resilience, courage and ethics, the importance of expertise, and much more. Please welcome the wise and gracious Susan Theoteau. Well, Susan, thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk the power of ethics. I've been really looking forward to the conversation. I guess to begin, I was wondering if we could maybe go back. Um, This is in search of wisdom. I'm always curious, is there anything in hindsight that has maybe led you down this path to, to be a leading expert today on ethics?
1: So I guess there are a couple of things. Um, One is that I started my career as a lawyer, and uh, I started to see over time that even in the most sophisticated law firms, the law wasn't cutting it, that as technology came uh, to the fore, um, for example, back in the days of Apple and the first Macs and the like, um, the law just wasn't there to keep up with the reality that was increasingly technologically infused, um, but also other developments, developments in biotechnology and just developments in society generally. Um, And so I started to really look for, um, to use your wonderful word, wisdom, about how do we solve problems? Where do we search for guidelines about how to behave with each other? uh, And where do we find our own center, our own sense of what we think is right for ourselves? Um, So that's one thing. But then the second is that I, uh, as I watched a world uh, becoming more and more polarized, in particular in the last uh, years, and also more and more unequal, uh, economic inequality, access to healthcare inequality and the like, I was increasingly interested in sort of my personal core mission and my professional core mission, which is democratizing ethics, which is understanding that it's got to be about more than just blaming the Facebooks of the world we all have responsibility. And as the title of the book suggests, we all also have a great deal of power. And so uh, my personal search, my research, my teaching, my advisory work, and ultimately the book is really about how do we find that power? And how can people from all walks of life who are not professional philosophers, or professional ethicists, uh, make their best contributions to society and make their best decisions for themselves?
0: Well, I love that. I love the idea of democratizing ethics. What would you say is maybe most misunderstood about ethics?
1: Most misunderstood. So first of all, I think people have an idea of ethics, that there is some external source of what is right and wrong. And for some people, it may be religion, and I very much respect that. Um, But there isn't, I'm asked all the time, who's going to decide what's right and wrong? And indeed, that is one of the most important questions of society today is who has the decision authority. For example, who gets to decide whether we allow people to edit genes for things beyond something as clear as curing cancer, Uh, for example, to fix other diseases that may be less serious or to create a better athlete or um, to choose sexual orientation, for example. So the who gets to decide question is very important. And very often, there's a misunderstanding that there's some external source that has all the answers. The other thing I would say is that uh, we have gotten ourselves into uh, an epidemic of binary thinking, of yes or no, uh, Brexit in the UK, in or out, um, at black or white. And in fact, most of today's dilemmas are really best solved by looking for the risks and looking for the opportunities and trying to maximize the opportunities and minimize the risks. But we have this habit of putting things into binary structures of decision-making, and we think it's sort of all in or all out, all yes or all no. Um, That doesn't serve us well as individuals. It doesn't serve society well today. And above all, it doesn't serve society well looking into the future. So, for example, maximizing the benefits of innovation while protecting us against the risks and protecting um, future Uh, generations against the risk. So I would say those two things come to the fore.
0: How about when you think about wisdom, how do you maybe connect ethics with wisdom and maybe differentiate the two?
1: So I think wisdom and ethics have a number of aspects in common. One is that they need to rest on a foundation of factual reality, truth. So that is, if you were to ask me, one of the biggest risks we face as a society today ethically, it's that we seem to be willing to compromise on factual truth. Um, the other uh, point in common is that they both require judgment. And uh, nobody is wise all the time. And somebody whose wisdom today or whose very ethical decision today, uh, you know, may turn out, it may turn out to be not so wise looking back on it. In the future. And so in both cases, I always, uh, I always advocate, look back on your decision now. Think about what your decision will look like in a year's time, in five years time, in 10 years time, even in a month's time. And what will it look like looking back from that vantage point? I call that 2020 foresight. Um, so they have that in common. I would say that there can be very wise people who are unethical though. So the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Somebody who's wise is not necessarily ethical, um, the reverse is a little bit, uh, trickier. Usually people who, um, behave ethically or who are reflective ethically where we, we don't, you know, none of us are behaved ethically all the time, but usually there's a fair amount of wisdom in that.
0: Mm. I really enjoyed the, how you write about ethical decision-making is not about seeking perfection. You call yourself an ethical realist and an Uh, Ethics optimist. Could you Mm -hmm. say more on that?
1: Sure. So, this question of perfectionism, in my view, is one of the biggest challenges we have to ethics today. And it comes up in all kinds of places. Um, It comes up, uh, for example, uh, with children and with adolescents and with university students thinking that if they get anything less than an A, life is over. It comes up with mental health issues like eating disorders. Uh, and the use of social media and some sense that, uh, for example, we can doctor our selfies and we see girls who are creating selfies that they like, and then literally taking those pictures to plastic surgeons and saying, make me like my perfect selfie. So uh, another place it's coming up is, you know, we don't want to take any risk on innovation. You know, driverless cars have to be absolutely perfect in safety before we're going to okay them. Never mind that regular cars come with all kinds of risk uh, and to raise the inequality point again, particularly in developing countries where the roads are unsafe, where the legal systems don't enforce traffic safety laws uh, and where access to medical care, God forbid, should there be an accident, is far less. So um, perfectionism is, is extremely dangerous. The other more general view of perfectionism is that it's not possible to achieve So, for example, in the corporate world, if we are asking for perfection, if we are asking for unrealistic targets or other variations on the theme of perfectionism, there's only two ways that people can respond. One is they can cheat to achieve that unachievable perfection. So there's the ethics problem. Two, they can give up. The third avenue is keep trying to achieve something that isn't achievable. And that's where we end up with mental health crises. So it's an extremely toxic concept, and it's one that uh, social media has uh, had a huge part in spreading, and we we really need to conquer that. The other uh, aspect of that is that I write a lot about ethical resilience, uh, and part of being an ethical person, being an ethical society, is giving ourselves space not to be perfect, but understanding that we need to earn the ethical resilience, and that it is possible to do so. We can learn from our mistakes, we can take responsibility, and we can make a plan so that we don't make the same mistakes again. Um, but this idea of perfectionism really sort of undercuts any notion that we can recover when we make mistakes. And again, that leads to all sorts of mental health crises and and giving up and, and, and a sense of hopelessness. Um, so uh, perfectionism is extremely, extremely dangerous. And I'm, I'm sort of, uh, on the rampage about that. As far <laughs> as being, an, uh, being an ethics optimist, I think we have a lot of space and a lot of power as the title of the book implies, and we have barely begun to tap into that power. So, uh, I, I think all of us can do more without necessarily a huge amount of effort even. Uh, and I think, um, yeah, yeah, I am optimistic. I am optimistic. That doesn't mean that uh, I'm not realistic. That there are people who will uh, harm. That there are people who are, you know, have evil thoughts. Uh, that there are people who will behave intentionally unethically. But I think, by and large, uh, I am very much an optimist. And even when it comes to the complex technology ethics,
0: as you write in the book, one of the important things of establishing principles. It seems like when, when we do that, whether it's a philosophy of life and we think about adopting some some principles, virtues, or, or values, that we're pretty quickly hit that they're difficult to actually carry out consistently on a daily basis, which requires some forgiveness of ourselves and, and hopefully forgiveness that expands out to others. How do you see forgiveness or, or what word might you use?
1: Well, it's a great question. Let me just start with this idea of principles, or some people might, as you say, call them values. Um, The issue and the reason why what you say is so true is that in today's world, our principles often come in conflict with each other. So if we lived in a simpler world, uh, we could just decide, well, we're not going to rob a bank. We're not going to commit fraud. Uh, We're not going to lie to our partner. Um, But we live in a world where there's right and wrong, uh, ethical and unethical on all sides of the decisions. And so we're constantly grappling with things like, uh, let's take a technological example, facial recognition technology. Um, If you have lost your child in a football stadium, you want facial recognition technology because you want to be able to find that child as quickly as possible. Same thing if you're looking for a terrorist. On the other hand, if you're an ordinary citizen, you don't want your photo taken at every street corner or every time you get in line to board an airport, uh, board an airplane rather, and you don't know where those photos are going or how they're being uh, compared through AI to other photos of you from other places and who sees all of this. So um, facial, recogn- facial, excuse me, facial recognition technology can be either very helpful or a massive invasion of privacy and potential ethics drama. Uh, And so that's just one example of how in our day-to-day lives today, we have right and wrong and good and bad on all sides. So we can have our principles all lined up, but some of our principles will be pitted against others of our principles. Um, So that's why your point is so important. With respect to forgiveness, I think in many cases with ethics, um, if we're looking at people outside, for example, a politician or our local religious leader or somebody who's made a mistake, it's not necessarily um, forgiveness in the sense that they, certain people might not have wronged us, so it's not necessarily for us to forgive. So I, you know, I I tend to steer clear of that word. It's more about ethical resilience. And for ethical resilience, what I say is whether it's for myself or whether it's how I'm going to assess somebody else, uh, someone I may work with, a family member, a friend, or as I said, a public figure. It's really about. Does the person tell the truth about what happened? All of it. Does the person take responsibility for their part in it? Now, you know, in many cases, we are not 100% responsible for for the drama, uh, for the ethics failure, but do they take responsibility for their part? And then third, do they have a plan to make sure that it doesn't happen again, or at least their part of it doesn't happen again? So there are examples, and, and one that I share in the book is Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau, who talks about examples when he was younger of, um, racist behavior at a party. And he straight up says that was racist. And not only was it racist, but even then we knew it was racist. There's kind of no beating around the bush. Um, and he takes full responsibility for it. Step two, and he has clearly not repeated that behavior. Um, so I think the idea of forgiveness can be important, but for me, it's more about, Actually, truth, responsibility, and a plan, ethical resilience, more than just forgiveness, you know, giving someone a pass.
0: How about for you, if I could ask, Susan, is there anything come to mind when you reflect individually and maybe there's nothing big, but, you know, you think about perfectionism, maybe the opposite of that, where we're making some mistakes. How do you navigate those our own and, and maybe suggest others navigate our own, you know, personal, maybe everyday shortcomings.
1: So I love the words personal and everyday. And in fact, the book that I'm working on now um, is called the little book of big ethical questions. And it is really day-to-day questions that we all face or day-to-day issues that we all see in the news and sort of what do we all think of them? And it's basically inviting people from all walks of life into a conversation conversation. I think the first thing is if we're well-intentioned, give ourselves space to make mistakes. We're all going to make mistakes. Um, I think the lessons that I've learned is are that truth is always easier told up front than sort of down the road uh, mm-hmm. when having hidden the truth, it gets discovered Um, I think that's really important. So I have, as I said, I have a a philosophical commitment to truth, but I have a personal commitment to truth as well. Um, And I think just a a hefty dose of of humility and really understanding that the world's problems today are complicated. Raising children today is complicated. The workplace is very complicated. Uh, We'll all say things that may offend other people unintentionally. And uh, I would hope that we give ourselves space and in so doing, give our give other people space to say things like, oh, my goodness, I, I, I shouldn't have said that it just came out the wrong way. Or I didn't realize it would offend you. I'm so sorry. Uh, and to give, you know, to give each other that space um, uh, and to and to, as I say, all of the all of today's questions require sort of a hefty dose of humility.
0: Hmm. I love that. Um, you've been teaching uh, a course, Ethics on the Edge, for a number of years before this book come came out. Uh, could you say more about this concept of e- ethics on the edge?
1: So Ethics on the Edge started about uh, nine, about nine years ago, I conceptualized this course, and this was way before most people were talking about ethics or even even really tech ethics to the extent we are today. And what I wanted to do was to explore questions that really genuinely were on the edge of society, where there weren't answers. So some of those questions are still out there. The edge may have been pushed forward, or the ethics may have caught up a little bit, but questions like gene editing or indeed facial recognition technology, other other aspects of AI. Um, But I also wanted to highlight the questions that I say are or describe as on the edge but shouldn't be. So, for example, rampant racism that is still part of our society, um, the inequality that is still part of our society. Uh, those are things that we should have been able to solve. We should have been able to eradicate or at least make much greater pro- progress toward eradicating a long time ago. So how do we understand those? Um, because those are not edgy questions. The science isn't changing minute by minute. Um, so, so that was the foundation of the, of the course. And the other idea behind the course was to give students a lot of space to explore issues of interest to them. So, for example, there's no exam, there's a final project, and students meet with me individually, I meet with every single student, and they decide a project, I and I help them craft something that is of a reasonable scope for the course. And I will get everything from, should California prisoners um, be able to be released on a daily basis to help fight fires in California, all the way to civilian space travel, uh, to, uh, genetically modified foods, as I said, gene editing, um, you know, uh, cyber, various kinds of cybersecurity issues, crypto. I mean, normally in a, in a class of say 45 to 50 students, I will have 45, 47 different topics. Usually there's only one or two topics that overlap. So one year it was Uber Uh, This year, it was Amazon's treatment of employees. I had two groups of students who wanted to work on that. Um, So it's great fun, but it's also designed to let the students kind of explore areas of interest to them. Because at the end of the day, the core learning of the class, the understanding of the forces that drive ethics, the understanding of how we construct an effective decision process, uh, how we engage in ethical resilience, they will get that core learning no matter what particular focus they choose for their project.
0: That's really cool. It sounds like some interesting topics.
1: They're fascinating. The <laughs> students are incredibly creative.
0: You make the book very practical. It's—I uh, I got a lot out of it, and you use this four-step framework that I—I I thought it would be great to just go through and maybe elaborate a bit on these four steps of principles, information, stakeholders, and and consequences. So maybe we could take a little bit of time and and go we go through each one if we could.
1: Sure. So I wanted to come up with a framework for decision-making that anybody could use and that everybody would remember after seeing it even in one chapter. Um, my students tell me that it sticks with them after one class. Uh, and when I work with it with organizations or with leaders, it's not something that takes sort of weeks and weeks. It just becomes sort of a habit, uh, almost without thinking about it. So the four, there it's literally four words, as you say, principles, information, stakeholders, and consequences. Um, By principles, I mean guides to decision-making, so not rules, not 35 miles an hour or no smoking. But um, principles might be different for you and for me. Uh, We all choose our own, and I certainly don't tell readers or students or anyone what their principles should be. But for some people, it might be compassionate, might be generosity. uh, It might be um, truth or transparency or integrity, accountability, responsibility. So um, typically when I ask students what their core principles are for themselves, I'll come up with about 30, 35 different ones that are common among a group of 50 students. Um, and I recommend sort of anywhere in the in the realm of five to seven principles, we don't have 10 or 15, that's too many, one or two tends to be too few. And even within sort of the five to seven, as I said earlier, we can find ourselves where some of our principles conflict. You know, we may be very concerned about safety, for example, an elderly parent driving, but we also care about um, their freedom uh, as another principle. So the two may conflict if we're trying to decide do we take the car keys away from elderly parents. Uh, Information, uh, most people look at information and decision-making as, you know, what is all the information I need to make the decision? And I actually try to look at it from the opposite perspective. We will never in today's world have all the information we actually would need, uh, whether it's because it's too complicated and we wouldn't understand it, whether it's because the science hasn't caught up, uh, or whether it's because it's changing so quickly that we can't keep up with it. So instead, what I say is we need to think about, indeed, what is the information we would like to have, but what is the information we can reasonably have and what is the gap between the two? And what I'm interested in is monitoring this gap in the information. What is the information we're missing? Because that's where the risk lies. Um, So we can make a decision today. And if the information gap changes, then we may need to adjust our decision over time. Uh, Stakeholders. Stakeholders I define as anybody who affects our decisions or could be affected by our decisions. And the key thing in this edgy world, as I describe it, is that many stakeholders we may never meet. Um, for example, there's a story uh, in China about a scientist who, against all international ethical orm- norms, edited the embryos of two twin girls, and that will affect generations to come. Uh, if we post something on social media, it might be reached, uh, reached by and acted upon by people on the other side of the planet. Uh, we now have bad actors who can, you know, launch a terrorist attack with a cell phone or we have good actors who can tutor a child on the other side of the world through a cell phone. So the idea is to really open our eyes about how far and wide stakeholders uh, can be and how we might be affecting stakeholders whom we've never met. And then finally, consequences over time. And there are really two key messages here. One is we need to be looking at the short, medium, and long-term consequences of our decision, but all at the time of the decision. And what we tend to have gotten ourselves into is what I call serial short termism. People convince themselves that they're looking at three timeframes by looking at, well, for now I'm going to do this, and then two weeks from now I'm going to look at my decision again and adjust, and then two weeks after I'm going to adjust. That is not what I mean by short, medium, and long term. Uh, I mean we really need to do we really do need to consider all of those timeframes at the time of the decision. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is the 2020 foresight that I mentioned earlier, which is catapult yourself into a future time. It might be a week, it might be a year, it might be 10 years, and ask yourself, you know, am I going to like my decision? You may not be able to predict the outcome of your decision. There may be forces that intervene that are beyond your control between the decision time and when that future time arrives, but you can certainly structure your decision, go through this process of thoughtful uh, ethical decision-making and at least be happy with your decision at that time, even if you're not so happy with the outcome.
0: It seems like it's challenging to see that whether it's just that, that last, um, step around consequences, but even the information and stakeholders, it makes me think of this philosophical concept or exercise, this cosmic view from above really getting, a. um, a higher view on it. Is there any practices that that come to mind in your experience of, of working with, with teams to, to help maybe see a, a bigger picture or you know more adequately navigate these steps?
1: So let me give you a very concrete example um that isn't so much about sort of cosmic big picture, but it's more like the specific consequences of a particular decision. So let's say um There's a sales team, and somebody decides to, you know, it's the end of the quarter, and somebody decides to record revenue on a Friday afternoon, the day the quarter ends, thinking that the revenue is going to come in, but it's just a different time zone, and you're kind of waiting for the time zone to catch up. And technically, it may be Saturday morning, but they're going to record this revenue on Friday what's going to happen in the future one thing that's going to happen is that other people will see that and if this person gets away with it they will do that too and pretty soon that practice will become normalized another thing is that at some point in that future in the future that will be discovered because there will be audits there will be you know um closer look at, at in, in organizations that have proper compliance and that will be found out and that will be problematic for the person And then uh, other people will be affected. So uh, one is going to wonder, well, where was the boss that allowed that to happen? And one is going to wonder, why did that happen? Uh, Did that happen because the sales targets are so impossible uh, or this person is under so much financial pressure that if they didn't meet the target, you know, all these forces that can drive unethical behavior, maybe in a year's time before you know it, you've got three or four people on the team doing it. And then maybe before you know it, other people are saying, wow, that team is, is, you know, succeeding in ways we're not. What's happening there? And they'll figure that out and it will spread. So there, that's a very concrete, um, and very straightforward example. But, uh, I think when we, when we think about the future, uh, for example, something more complicated like driverless cars, we need to think about, well, you know, what are the opportunities we're missing if we don't pursue this innovation? How many people who uh, suffer from physical disabilities? How many people who might drive drunk who could have avoided that by having a driverless car? How many people in developing countries would be safer? Um, how many people would have access to transportation that could be environmentally friendly because it's maybe shared, etc.? So we can, you know, we can start to think in those terms as well. Um, but I like to be very concrete uh, because I think, you know, as I say in the book, ethics happens in reality. So there, there are lar- sort of larger, more abstract questions, um, but I tend to think about this framework for decision-making in very concrete terms.
0: I love that. And I love the many practical examples throughout. You list these 60 principles that, and you kind of rank them in order. You mention how you have each of your students uh, give five to seven principles, and, and you, you talk about how... And you just mentioned how it's for the individual to obviously pick these, these guiding, guiding principles. And there's quite a few. There's, there's 60. I saw wisdom number 35 on the, on the list, which is kind of difficult Mm -hmm. to define and kind of obviously understand that. And there's some synonyms in there. There's obviously, uh, when it comes to values, many things, um, are interconnected. But I was wondering around this idea of, of picking your own values but then also looking at some of the time-tested values or virtues, like the cardinal virtues of courage being one. And it was kind of looking through the list of 60, um, and I don't see courage on the list or really too many synonyms around courage on that. But when I think of these stories throughout the book and, and some of these people making unethical decisions, it seems like you could classify some of those decisions as a, as a lack of, of courage. How do you think about courage and ethics? Um, but yeah, what, what are your thoughts there, Susan?
1: So I think courage is incredibly important and I personally love it. It doesn't mean that, you know, given five to seven, everybody would put that, uh, you know, but there are corporations that have courage as one of their core, principles. For example, L'Oreal has four principles and courage is one of them. Ethics requires courage in today's world. There are always times when something as seemingly simple as telling the truth uh, requires significant courage, even if it's telling the truth about uh, something that is really not our fault. So for example, we do a home genetics testing kit and we actually discover that we may um, be more vulnerable to a genetic disease, but we have a child who also could be more vulnerable. Um, do we tell the the, the child? Um, it depends, you know, whether the child is an adult or a minor. In my view, but there's courage around that. There's courage around um, whether we refrain from certain behavior. But I think courage is it's a fantastic point you make because I think courage underpins pretty much everything we do uh, in the ethics realm and. The trickier the conversation, uh, the more courage required. And courage isn't just required in, um, in the personal sense, like the example of taking car keys away from an elderly parent or from a friend who's, um, you know, perhaps had a few too many drinks. But what about the courage of corporate leaders to say, I'm sorry, shareholders, I'm going to forgo a significant amount of profit because this particular technology is just not ripe for public engagement, or this particular technology, you know, we need to stop certain things that we know are immensely popular, even though um, in some cases they may be perfectly fine. There are cases where the technology is being misused, so we're just going to stop it all for now until we figure out how we can actually filter the good from the bad, and then we'll put it back out there. But uh, you know, one of the biggest problems with with um, corporate behavior today is a fundamental lack of courage to withstand the profit impact of making some of these decisions. Because there's a difference between the ethics of trying to push forward an innovation that can save lives and that can increase access, the driverless car example, or the gene editing to cure cancer uh, example, versus just, for example, more social media gadgets that could be potential uh, distributors of falsity, distributors of mental health epidemics, before we can actually, you know, control them so that the positive is okay, and the negative isn't.
0: Connected to that, this step of, of information, there seems to be a lot of skepticism around information in the, in the culture today. And you write how compromised truth is this, the single greatest threat to humanity. Could you say more on this idea of compromised truth?
1: Sure. Um, We definitely uh, recently, but in particular uh, now in this social media world, we live in a world in which uh, compromised truth is is happening in a number of different ways. The first is that there has been um, great distrust of expertise. And I include in that science. And we see that in the anti-vaxxers, but we see that in a number of other ways. We see that in the academic world, by the way, where Um, there's increasing mistrust of expertise. So uh, just on that one, I think the responsibility to fixing that mistrust is also with the experts. Experts need to learn how to communicate their expertise in ways that people from all walks of life can understand it. Uh, They need to learn to take responsibility for communicating where they are unsure of themselves. Um, So an example would be at the beginning of COVID epidemic, Don't tell people don't wear masks, tell people don't wear masks because right now we can't make enough of them and we need the doctors and nurses and other medical personnel to have access to them. So please don't wear them, you know, uh, so that there's no confusion that we're not saying don't wear masks because they don't help. We're saying don't wear masks because we simply don't have enough of them. So that was an example of mistrust of experts at the very beginning of the COVID epidemic. Um, so that's one part of it. The other part of Compromise Truth today is that it spreads like wildfire because of social media uh, and that we simply can't as individuals verify everything that comes into our inbox, everything that appears on social media. But we do, as I say in the book, we do have a responsibility to try to protect ourselves, to try to, li- to you know, take information from reputable sources, to try to take things from different sources, uh, expose ourselves to different points of view and the like. Uh, But the reason that truth uh, sort of upsets completely the ethics apple cart is that if we go back to this idea of principles, any one of the 60 that my students mention sits on a foundation of truth. So accountability, you can't have it without truth. Uh, Wisdom, you can't have it without truth. Honesty, transparency, they all sit on truth. Uh, So I, I challenge my students to come up with one ethical principle that, or one guiding principle, as I call it in the book, that doesn't rest on a foundation of truth. And once you don't have the principles, then the whole, uh, the whole framework sort of collapses. But the other thing is that if you go down my framework, every rung of the framework below principles also sits on truth information, untruthful information, garbage in garbage out in terms of decision-making stakeholders. uh, if you don't have the right information, you can't know who the stakeholders are. Uh, And if you don't know who the stakeholders are, you can't make a wise decision, an ethical decision about um, how you're going to behave relative to the stakeholders. And then finally, you certainly can't have any visibility on consequences over time if you don't have information and you don't know who the stakeholders are. So all ethical decision making, in my view, hinges on truth. And we're at, you know, in the middle of this perfect storm where not only is it easy to distort the truth, but people are willing to tolerate distorted truth.
0: Such an important point. This the foundation of, of truth with with all of those uh, principles. You mentioned early in the conversation this banishing binary thinking. Uh, are there any thoughts in terms of practical terms of, of what might help people to to better, you know, loosen, I guess, if you will, the, our binary thinking?
1: Sure. So one of the reasons that we fall into this trap of binary thinking is that uh, it's easier. It's much easier to choose between yes and no or in or out than to actually come up with a more complex series of uh, elements to a final decision. And um, the way I look at decisions is instead of yes or no or ethical or unethical, what are the risks And what are the opportunities? And what we want to do is to say, we want to seize every opportunity we possibly can. We want to maximize the opportunity and we want to minimize the risks. So if we get in the habit of listing the opportunities and listing the risks and figuring out which decision is going to um, maximize opportunity, mitigate risk, then we're doing the best we can. Now, sometimes it does end up having to be binary. It's yes or no, we're going to do something. But it can be, yes, we're going to do it. But, uh, for example, our elderly parent is only going to drive in daylight and only going to drive in speed zones that are 25 miles an hour. So it's a way of thinking that isn't just all in or all out. Uh, and And I think it's incredibly important when we look at innovations because innovations cannot possibly be all good or all bad for the most part because we don't necessarily know enough about them. But that's the example of the facial recognition technology. So let's say we allow it for the sort, for reasons like finding a terrorist or finding a lost child, but let's say maybe we just press pause on some of the other uses, for example, police use of facial recognition, until we're sure that we can protect privacy a little bit better, until we're sure that the accuracy is better, until we're sure that it's not going to be racially biased. And we have data that shows that it is, uh, at the moment, uh, can be very racially biased and even gender biased. So- um, it is shifting. The, it's shifting thinking into into risks and opportunities. Now there are some things, and I am very clear about this in the book. There are some things that are binary. Racism is straight up no, never. Um, sexual misconduct, straight up no, never. Um, but by and large, we're facing an awful lot of uh, gray zones in our lives today.
0: It it seems to be many decisions fall into that category. And it's almost um, our our systems are, are set up that way. You think of left and right, whether it's uh, political. I, I always think of the Robert uh, Frost poem of, of the two roads. It can be very difficult to to see this maybe both and thinking. It's a very ancient idea that, that comes up many times in some of the previous episodes. But are there any thoughts that for practices that might help someone to, to see both and, and maybe see that there's pros and cons with each, each path?
1: So it isn't necessarily both. And it really is about risks and opportunities. You know, we really don't want some of the risks, um, and we really do want the opportunities. Um, so, uh, so I think it, it, you know, that's the, that's really the way I look at the world is, where what are the risks that are intolerable? There are some risks that we just cannot live with. So, in my view, and in the view of many scientists, and I am by no means a scientist, so I very much look uh, to them uh, and defer to them. Editing the embryos, uh, the germ—you know—affecting the human germline is a straight up no. We have no idea what the consequences of that could be today. Um, so, there are some what I you know decisions that we make that are um, both unacceptable and permanent. So I give an example in the book of the Boeing, the tragic Boeing uh, plane crash in Ethiopia, which was the second one in a matter of months after the tragic crash in Indonesia. And the then CEO of Boeing is trying to convince President Trump and others that he should still be allowed to fly the planes. And my thinking on that is the consequences of flying those planes before he's understood what happened in two deadly crashes are both obviously unacceptable, the loss of human life, and permanent. So I think that's one way we can put some boundaries. Um, and then beyond that, we we can, again, really look for, for opportunities and risks.
0: What are you still really curious about around this topic of ethics, Susan?
1: I'm really curious about to what extent individuals will start to see their own power and start to deploy it. And it can be something as simple as deciding we're not going to post a photo of a baby that that child might not like uh, being posted when they look back on it, when they're 13 or when they're 20. Um, and I'm not making a judgment about that. That's a, an individual choice, but as I'm advocating for the power of our individual thought It can be as simple as deciding we're going to tell the truth, the courage you referred to at a particular time. Uh, It can be as simple as saying, you know what, I don't really know what I'm going to learn if I use 23andMe, and I'm not sure I'm able to handle it, so I'm just going to press pause. Maybe I'm going to talk to a medical expert, maybe not. Maybe I'll just come back to it in six months when I've really taken the time to read the fine print that the company does give us. Um, but I'm really curious as to how much we will start to take up our personal power in, in ethics around us, technological or not.
0: If there was somebody listening that was maybe in the category of feeling a bit of skepticism around information, any anything that comes to mind that you might pass on to them to maybe build back a bit more faith in, in expertise and in, in truth?
1: So the first thing I would say is that uh, some skepticism is warranted. Um, we need to be careful about all of the different kinds of information that appears in our lives in various ways. And it is extremely difficult to navigate all of it to make sure that we are dealing in truth, so to speak. Uh, and I would say that, as I said earlier, the experts owe us to be clear about their expertise in real time. The owe us Uh, an understandable version of the expertise. They don't get to sort of be off in an ivory tower and then dictate our ethics without telling us in a way we can understand what the science is or what the social science is. Um, So I would say that we all need to work to mitigate that skepticism. Uh, And at the same time, for the skeptic, I would really urge the skeptics at least to commit to truth. And to commit to understanding that we do need to rely on expertise as a source of truth. Uh, so not to dismiss expertise, but to hold experts' feet to the fire a little bit.
0: Is there any ancient texts or philosophers that, that come to mind that have really helped maybe influence your view on ethics today?
1: Let me just say that I read with tremendous humility And as a non-philosopher, non-philosopher, I'm not a, you know, a philosophy expert, ancient texts, I'm fascinated by them. Um, There isn't any one, but I would say they all do. Because they all show such creativity, such thoughtfulness. Uh, They all give clues about the time in which they were writing. Uh, And they all give me a sense of we need each other to sort of test our ideas, to test our ethics, to give us perspective. Um, So I definitely think reading texts from, not just from philosophy, by the way, but also from literature. Um, Mm. There's even, you know, fiction. There's sort of no better way to try on our ethics than by looking at it through the lens of a fictional character and seeing where that goes or um, character in a movie for that matter. So, yeah, I'm an avid consumer of all of the above, um I'm definitely not an expert philosopher, um, but have learned a lot from from all of the, most importantly, the importance of thoughtfulness, of pressing pause and reflecting.
0: If you could pick maybe in an, an aphorism, a quote, any anything that comes to mind that would be useful to blast across billboards, bumper stickers, social media. Uh is there anything that, that comes to mind?
1: There isn't a particular quote that I've had from somebody else. I mean, I'm sure there would be many if I were given a little bit of time to to dig through my notes and to reflect a bit. What I would say is there's no such thing as alternatively factual ethics. Mm. I love it. Uh, we really, really need to keep coming back to this question of truth.
0: Well, I, I really in, enjoyed this book, the, the Power of Ethics, which is out now, came out this year. But maybe could you take a minute and talk a little bit about this, this new book? I think if I saw correctly, it, it comes out in April.
1: It does. Um, so the new book is called um, The Little Book of Big Ethical Questions. And it is a very different structure from The Power of Ethics. It is um, question and answer. And what I've done is I've chosen a number of themes. In the, and the the questions can be read in any order. So the book doesn't have to be read chapter by chapter. And it takes scenarios that uh, many of us face in our daily lives, um, or that are just interesting to chew on uh, ourselves or in conversation with friends or in conversation while waiting in line for a coffee. Um, and then I give what I call an exploration, meaning not an answer, just some additional background that people might not have. So they don't have to say, well, I really don't know enough about this. Uh, I've done the work. And also some uh, reflection of my own about the key things to think about. But these reflections, these explorations are about 400 words. So it's a quick, uh, accessible read. And there are themes. So there's a chapter on uh, family and friends. There's a chapter on health. There's a chapter on politics and civil society. Uh, There's a chapter on technology. There's a chapter on the workplace So if you're looking for a particular theme, you can go to uh, a chapter. Otherwise, you can just have fun looking through the book and picking a question and sort of seeing what you and your friends think. But it hopefully will spur some dinner conversations.
0: (laughs) That sounds great. I love the format. Excited to read that one as well. Uh, Is there anything that we didn't discuss, Susan, that that we should have?
1: I guess I would say that um, we all have significant power, as I've said and as I describe in the book. But we also do need to hold our leaders' uh, feet to the fire. We do need to expect of our technology leaders that they will have the courage that you so helpfully referred to, uh, to do the right thing. And that may mean foregoing profit. It may simply mean uh, making decisions that are unpopular, that have nothing to do with profit. Um, We also need our governmental leaders to catch up. We need appropriate regulation. We need, um, as I say in the book, I'm a pro-innovation ethicist. So we need uh, practical pro-innovation regulation also. We need everybody in the mix here in order to uh, further the ethics of our society and to make things better for everybody individually. And uh, at the moment, uh, I'm very focused on um, creating uh, works and training students and advising in a way that everybody can join in, but that by no means uh, indicates that the leaders are not uh, are not being held accountable.
0: Well, this has been great. Where do you point people interested in in learning more about you?
1: So I have a website that is a nonprofit endeavor called uh, the Ethics Incubator, and I interview um, a wide variety of leaders, um, some artists. So, for example, the architect Frank Gehry. Um, writers uh, like Sir Salman Rushdie, uh, and also technology people and, and others. And so that's one place where you can see me in conversation. Uh, and that's available um, for the most part with videos and also podcast. Uh, and um, definitely the book and the book to come. And also I welcome ideas, conversation. Um, and occasionally I, I write articles, although I must say a little bit less when I'm working on a book. Um, But very happy to engage with people also. Uh, So to reach out through, uh, I'm on LinkedIn and happy to engage in conversation for anybody interested and happy to speak also. And in particular to educational groups, nonprofit organizations and the like.
0: Well, Susan, thank you so much for your time. This has really been great. I really appreciate it.
1: Definitely been my pleasure. I've learned a lot, Joshua. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.